Well, I'm going to uh, invite a friend to come up, uh, friend Jay Jansen. Uh, Jay is a pastoral elder at Highland Community Church and a good friend uh, to me personally and also to us here at uh, Jericho Ridge. You know, we have a, a number of churches within our denominational family that have affinity with each other on a number of theological fronts and just relational fronts as well. And so it's a real privilege and pleasure to have you here sharing with us. I was a number of months ago saying uh, to some of my friends who are pastoring, saying, hey, we're going to do this series called The Bible Doesn't Say That. You know, what, when you hear people talk about things, what do you hear them say that isn't in the Bible? And what do we want to talk together about? And how would we go about having that conversation? And uh, so Jay's here with us today to further that in our series. And I want to pray for you and for your church and for your family. Gracious God, uh, we thank you for the gift of relationships that you've given to us. And God, uh, we're grateful that you have called us to be a part not only of our immediate church family here at Jericho, but also a wider network and a family here in our province and our nation and globally together of Mennonite Brethren and Anabaptist churches. And so we thank you for that. We ask uh, and pray that you would continue to knit us together by your spirit, that you'd continue to strengthen the work uh, of Jay and the elders at Highland Church in Abbotsford. Uh, we thank you for his friendship. We thank you for his wisdom, his insight, the many gifts that you have given to him and Andrea and their family. And so, God, as he shares with us now, we open our hearts to receive everything that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. That's me doing that cool sound. Oh, shoot. There you go, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to switch these around because this is a little bit higher. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Um, I will, uh, my, my talk this morning is called The Gospel of Judgment. And um, uh, I test, about a month ago, I, I test drove this sermon with folks at Highland, and uh, they judged it worthy of bringing to you. <laughs> and... Um, in fact, even suggested some helpful revisions that, that will show up. I won't necessarily say this comes from so-and-so, but um, there's been a bit of refining here. So um, consider this a word not just from me, but from the community at Highland Community Church. Um, I don't know if you have Bibles. You probably have more of your apps, so it makes it tougher to stick your fingers in certain places. But um, a couple of the texts that I'll be referring to show up on the, on the front of, your, uh, of your, uh, the, the, the handout, the bulletin that you got. I'm going to be focusing primarily on Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, but I'm also going to refer to Psalm 82 at one point. I'm going to be jumping off of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 ever so briefly. So if you want, I don't know, yeah, you can figure out how that works for you if you want to follow along at some point to refer to that text as I, as I touch on it. So here we go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has this to say to the community of Christians in Corinth. He writes, it's widely reported that there's sexual immorality among you, immorality of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Why aren't you in mourning? This person and his conduct should be confronted and dealt with. Let me tell you what I've already done. I may be away from you physically, but I'm present in the spirit, and I've already passed judgment as though I was there with you on the person who has behaved in this way. 
When you are assembled together in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is there too with the power of our Lord Jesus, you must hand over such a person to the Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Talk like this, talk of judgment such as this for many people that I know, well, that's a cringeworthy experience. It generates feelings of discomfort. If Paul were saying this sort of thing in some of the circles of, that I move in, I can imagine that after a few awkward moments, someone would shrug their shoulders and say, but who are we to judge? Or imagine Paul saying these words to a group of teenagers. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Offer a critique of someone or something, and chances are you've been chided with this unbelievable roll of the eyes and the disdainful statement, don't be so judgmental. So one of the common cultural scripts among churchgoers and among folks who wouldn't claim to have a Christian faith or any faith at all is that people commit the sin of judgmentalism when they insist that a belief or a behavior is wrong. There's this often unspoken sense that people who do such a thing are ignorant, intolerant, narrow-minded, dogmatic, bigoted. After all, the perceived assumption is that saying one thing is bad, well, that person believes they're better. It's like that TSN 1040 sports talk radio host who says, I'm not saying you're wrong, you're just not as right as I am. <laughs> so you can, begin, you can begin to imagine what people would be saying about Paul based on the words that we've heard. One of the phrases that Paul's words brought to mind for someone at Highland was, they, they, they'd heard this said before, judging, you're not loving. In other words, there's a sense that judgment is equated with something like condemnation, or at the very least, not being loving. So as a result, people often quote the King James Version of uh, Jesus' words to make their point from Matthew 7. Judge not, lest ye be judged. The NIV reads like this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, to be clear, the discomfort and the resistance towards, towards judgmentalism is a good thing. For example, how many times do we demand the speck be removed from the other person's eye? Could be our wife, could be our husband, could be our kids, could be a coworker. But how often do we demand that the speck be removed from their eye because it bugs us? And it actually really isn't a bother for them at all. There's frequently, there's, there's frequently a selfishness about us. It's not really for their benefit or for their growth. It's about our comfort. So avoiding judgmentalism is, in an important way, calling people on their all-too-common self-centered foolishness. On a more serious note, there are far too many instances in which people think they're superior to others because they haven't committed the acts of others. Oh, well, I didn't do drugs, or I don't parent my kids like that. And there are far too many occasions in which people have condemned others with words like loser, retard, fag, slut, just another drunken Indian. 
He's schizo. The list could go on. Judgmentalism in the form of racism, sexism, ethnocentrism, and a whole long list of other isms in our world that, well, they need to be resisted and they need to be dismantled. In that sense, inclusivism is a good thing. And I suspect that we would go a long way if we simply refused to label and limit and liquidate others with our words. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus is speaking against when he says, do not judge. Earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus names the scribes and the Pharisees as people who, in an effort to restore the holiness of God's people, have set themselves up as critics of others. They've taken on the role of policing the Jewish people. And in so doing, they've become people who look down on others. And they do so unfairly. They see a person with leprosy and they conclude, he's sick, he must have sinned, he's a sinner. Label. And now his disease is polluting us. He's a burden. Limit. We need purity. Get him to a leper colony. Liquidate. Jesus is highly critical of that attitude, that sort of judgmentalism that condemns. He's speaking against that when he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? But here's the thing. Less than two verses later, Jesus suggests that there is room for judgment. The NIV translates Jesus' words this way in verses four and five. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he seems to be suggesting that there is room for judgment. So what's Jesus on about here? Is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down when it comes to judgment? Now, let me just pause here for a moment. The critique of judgmentalism can go too far. Inclusivism can get us into some trouble. If we aren't careful, the statement, don't judge lest you be judged, can lead us to think that judgment of any kind is bad. Who am I to judge is typically code for, you have no business making any critique of what's going on. But that sort of perspective is naive. It's simplistic. It's sloppy. For example, if all judgment is wrong, then how can we say that it's wrong for a father to abuse his children? And if we're not supposed to judge lest we be judged, then how can a teacher grade a student's assignment? I can see a few of the emerging adults going amen to that. And to what grounds can we ask our boss for a raise? After all, we're judging his decision regarding our remuneration, right? So my point is that in the absence of judgment, we very quickly find ourselves silent in the face of oppression, voiceless when we come up against wrongdoing. You know, let me add one more thought. From a logical perspective, there's an irony that often goes unrecognized. When we say, boy, is she ever judgmental, we are exercising judgment. 
The fact of the matter is that everyone is judgmental almost all the time. To borrow language from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the atheist tends to believe that she knows the truth and religious faith is foolishness. The Buddhist likely thinks his spirituality will lead to the gifts of God's spirit. We can expect that the environmentalist assumes that her eco-friendly lifestyle is spiritually discerned. Chances are the politician categorizes opposing views as unspiritual. We've seen this playing out between uh, Trudeau and Trump as they verbally duke it out. We've seen this play itself out in the debates around gender-neutral pronouns with the University of Toronto professor Jordan Peterson. People who are championing, championing inclusivity have proven to be less than hospitable to Peterson's differing convictions. So what I'm trying to get at here is that Christians think they're more right than others. Atheists think they're more right than others. Hindus believe they are more right than others, and so on. If we didn't think we were right, we would believe, we would believe in other things and live in different ways. And so as far as I can tell, it's a fundamental aspect of being human that we exercise judgment on a daily basis. And this isn't just a Christian thing to be saying. Thinkers of various stripes agree. You can check out Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, is one of the finer examples of this. So if we're supposed to avoid judgmentalism, but can't avoid exercising judgment, what do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> if we go back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, Jesus is suggesting that we're supposed to reject one form of judgment, what I've been calling judgmentalism. You could also maybe call it condemnation and instead embrace a richer understanding of judgment. We might call it biblical judgment, or better yet, Trinitarian judgment. It's a judgment that is all about drawing humanity and creation back into the relational wholeness of God. Over and over throughout the Hebrew Testament, we're told that humanity is created in God's image and deputized in the task of preserving and sustaining and tending to the world on God's behalf. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and in Psalm 8, we are reminded that humanity is divinely ordained to exercise judgment in such a way that all of creation will flourish. There's a sense that humans are servants of God and servants of creation and accountable to God and creation. And so Psalm 82, which we heard earlier, echoes this creational mandate using the language of justice. You are gods, the psalmist declares, children of the Most High. The expectation of the children is that they should preserve the needy from the wicked, sustain the weak, tend to the destitute. Psalm 82 invites us to embrace our purpose and to image God by judging justly on behalf of God for the sake of all creation. For when power is abused and the wicked are favored at the expense of the poor, the very fabric of creation is threatened with destruction. It begins to fray and unravel. An example of this is that the desire for oil is fueled, and the pun is intended, by corporations and individuals felt need for more profit and by our human desire for convenience. And the result is that the environment is feeling the pressure. 
Now, as the story in the Hebrew Bible continues, the nation of Israel and her kings are tasked with exercising good judgment. Consider King Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, we're told that he is a king who judges wisely. He's obedient to God. He shutters the place of, places of idol worship, and he sends leaders throughout Judah to teach people the ways of God. He gives his judges this command. Consider what you are doing, for you judge not on behalf of human beings, but on the Lord's behalf. We're told that the country experiences religious revival and economic prosperity as a result. Earlier I spoke of labeling, limiting, and liquidating. One of the tasks of biblical judgment is to name reality well. Going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in Hebrew thinking there's a belief that speaking is a powerful creative act. God speaks and creation comes into being. And Adam is giving the task of naming the animals, a powerful creative act that gives shape and form to reality, just like God. Adam exercises judgment and comes up with these amazing names like giraffe and armadillo and ant, like weird names, beautiful names. For Israel's kings, the job is the same. They are to name what is just and name what is unjust. So what I'm getting at is that judgment is about naming what is good. This positive aspect is often forgotten, but it's vitally important. When we name what is good, we somehow make it permanent. A simple example goes back to Olympic figure skating. People cheer when judges' marks are announced at skating and, and diving competitions, too. Judgment is good news because it recognizes and rewards what has been done well. 9.8, 9.8, 9.8, and everyone's cheering. If you remember at the 2002 Winter Olympics, audience members booed and TV commentators cried foul because the judges didn't do their job. In the last portion of the Paris event, the Russian couple made a mistake the Canadian duo of David Pelche and Jamie Saleh skated flawlessly, and yet they were awarded second. The Russians won gold because some of the judges didn't give the Canadians the marks that they deserved because they'd been bribed. So uproar around poor judgment because they knew that they had abdicated the responsibility of naming what was good. So it's that sort of judgment that Jewish, biblical, Trinitarian judgment that Jesus is calling us to exercise as his followers. So those of us who are privileged with power and opportunity can work at making sure more people are included in the experience of equality and dignity and justice. We exercise our judgment on behalf of God for the sake of others flourishing. The hungry are given food. The homeless receive shelter. The hurting are offered comfort and protection and so on. Isaiah 58 has some of these words describing what good judgment looks like. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them. 
and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the fatherless, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. The Lord will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Notice how this judgment brings about not just interpersonal and individual wholeness, but the wholeness of cities, the wholeness of creation. And Isaiah ends with this word, if you do these things, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Talk about good news. Judgment then shouldn't just make us squirm. When judgment is exercised wisely, it becomes gospel. Good judgment is an act of love. It frees us all to live together in wholeness. It draws us into relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and humanity and creation. One aspect of judgment to keep in mind, though, is humility. In the previous verses, the prophet Isaiah points out how God's people have frequently judged unfairly. Too often, they've turned their backs on others. They've abandoned a posture of humility and have considered themselves to be right about everything all the time. And in that sense, they've lost sight of the vision of Psalm 82, that God, not us, sits on the throne. God is God, not us. So good judgment demands humility. There remain secrets of God's wisdom that we have yet to learn. It's advisable for Christians to admit weakness and say, based on what I know, I believe Jesus is Lord. I still have lots to learn about living in obedience to the King. We're to remember that when we were unspiritual, Jesus made a judgment call. We were worth his death on the cross. So where does that leave us on this Father's Day? Well, biblical judgment is primarily about establishing wholeness, setting things right, restoration, or at the very least, keeping things from getting worse. So sometimes good judgment involves saying no. Sometimes it means saying yes. For those of you that are parents, been in relationships with others, it's often about both at the same time, isn't it? Sometimes good judgment is about saying nothing and simply listening well. So, KJ, you're thinking, what does this look like concretely? What does good judgment look like? Well, in the case of the Corinthian church, it is about confronting people when they're pursuing behaviors that destroy themselves and destroy others. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul points towards the process by which we exercise sound judgment. And it's outlined by, Matthew, in, in, by Jesus in Matthew 18. And I won't go into too much detail here because that would be a whole other sermon in itself. But it's worth saying that the process Paul and Jesus suggest seeks to restore people, not to condemn them. 
Good judgment looks to restore. So I can imagine that some people who know both the man and the woman that Paul is speaking against, I can imagine some, a group of people in the church sitting down with them and saying, do you realize the damage you're causing to yourselves and to us? This isn't appropriate. It needs to stop. And we're here to help you. Now, if the couple refuse because they're stubborn, well, then the community releases them. And that's a way of explicitly recognizing what's going on, that the individuals are choosing to go in a different direction from that of the church. When I shared these thoughts at Highland, one of the men who has been at Highland for 20-plus years longer than I have told me, that's exactly the kind of judgment I received from a few Highlanders a few years ago. They confronted me, and they came alongside me, and it saved my marriage. Good judgment also looks like men and women who break the silence around sexual misconduct. And that includes survivors. It includes the advocates for those survivors. It includes the friends and family who support them. That's good judgment. They stand with the victims and say, and say no to the offenders. Good judgment can also be reflected in, our, in the kind of self-talk we exercise. Do you focus on the imperfections of yourself? I can't do anything right. And ignore the positive? Do you beat yourself up? I'm such a loser. Well, Romans 12 verse 3 says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So my hunch is that we're going to have to, we're going to have a difficult time exercising sober judgment in our world if we haven't worked at some point on exercising sober judgment for ourselves. How do you react when you or someone you know slips up that you disagree with? Are you quick to give up on someone? He's hopeless. Or she's a complete waste of time. As if a poor choice cancels out all that's good. Um, I'm a baseball, I was, I, yesterday I was coaching my, great, my nine-year-old baseball team in the championship game. We lost 5-2. <laughs> I, I'm okay, mostly. But if we want to talk about how to exercise good judgment about nine-year-old baseball players, oh man. So I have a coach that uh, impacted me when I was about 13 years old. His name was Dave Kaler, and he said, one of the rules that he had was that as a team, we're only going to, we're going to be, use positive encouragement. So we're going to avoid words like, uh, don't do that, and uh, there was a long list, and we won't get into that. But he shaped me in the way in which I was going to exercise judgment as a coach. So we've got Alex. Alex is playing first base. No, more, more accurately, he's at first base. <laughs> he's at first base standing there. And the ball gets hit to him, and he's kind of like this, and it hits him. <laughs> and he fumbles with the ball. The runner gets to first base safe. And I could go, Alex, you screwed up. And instead, it's like, Alex, Way to get in front of the ball. Way to knock it down. <laughs> Alex, uh, he, got, he got three hits by the end of the year. He still has some work to do with his throwing. 
But you'll notice maybe what I was trying to do in that moment. I was actually working at discipline there. I was trying to name what he did well. Yep, you got in front of the ball. Now, it would have been good if he would have been looking at the ball, but he got in front of the ball, so I'm coaching him there. And I'm also implying in those positive statements, here's how you can improve. So judgment is discipline. It can be a positive thing. I'm trying to set my kids up to succeed. And obviously we did something right because we made it to the final. I will brag about them a little bit that way. So when it comes to people, there's no such thing as black and white. Each of us is a colorful mix of good and bad, requiring grace if we hope to learn from our mistakes. So it's fitting that we extend the same generous mercy and love the good in others, even if they never agree with us, even if they never learn how to throw properly. Here are some good judgmental words. Good job. I love you. I forgive you. I'm sorry. I need help. The peace of Christ be with you. Trinitarian judgment is guided by the question, how does my assessment enable flourishing? So judgment becomes good news when we seek not to condemn, but to bless, to set the world to rights, to enable the flourishing of others. So that means that, yeah, we'll point out some things where this person's struggling, where this person needs help, but we also are very quick to say, here's how we can grow this, and here's how I'm going to help. Consider what you are doing, for you judge not on behalf of human beings, but on God's behalf. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's our invitation. I don't know how it looks for you to fulfill that duty of exercising Trinitarian judgment in the week to come. I'm going to have to let you be the judge of that. As we move into a, a time of response, you're welcome to uh, take whatever posture you like. You're welcome to stand or kneel or sit and be aware that the worship team uh, and the prayer team is going to be available for, uh, yeah, for any response and, and joining with you in prayer as you yeah, bring your request before the Father.